Well, hello everyone. This is Jim Townsend, and Julie and I are working to flesh out a transatlantic program uh, that is growing by leaps and bounds. And one of the leaps and bounds, of course, is the podcast that you have now um, tuned into, and it's something that we're very proud of. We're going to roll it out soon, but um, we've given it the name Brussels Sprouts, which is uh, a good description of all of the podcasts we hope to have that will involve Europe, that will involve things coming out of Brussels. Uh, so it's something that uh, I hope you look forward to. It's something that we look forward to doing. And I have a great uh, podcast today with a very good friend, Minister Sarida from Norway. Uh, she is someone that um, more than any other Norwegian Minister of Defense has established close relationships with all the Secretaries of Defense that she has dealt with. And that has caused for the U.S.-Norwegian defense relationship be the, to be the strongest it has ever been. And all of us who have worked with Norway over the many years are watching what Norway does in terms of its military, in terms of its defense programs, and year by year it gets stronger. And a lot of this is due to the efforts of Minister Sarita and all that she has done with her colleagues there in the Ministry of Defense. So on a personal basis, as well as on a professional basis, it's a great honor for me to have you here, Minister. Oh, thank you, Jim. It's a great honor to be here as well. So, um, as we were saying a little bit earlier, we always start our podcast off to reflect a little bit on the great truth, the great truths that ministers or other um, guests who have had long experience uh, in their careers, uh, facing obstacles, facing tough decisions, um, looking at tough problems around the world or at home that we have to deal with. And we always ask our guests, what, what is the great truth that that they have emerged with from this experience, from this long time. And so, Minister, as we sit here in the residence of the Norwegian ambassador, what great truth can you offer us today? Well, I think that in a, in a long political life, you have a lot of experiences that somehow shape you and shape the way you think. But I, wouldn't, I would say that the truth, the great truth that is emerging is that there is not a choice in our world anymore between good and bad. It's usually bad or worse. All the solutions, all the choices that you are uh, put to deal with has some sort of implications that are not always good. We do not live in an ideal world. And, and I sometimes say that to people who, um, and this is not meant negatively, but if you don't have to deal with the consequences of politics, it's easy to sit behind your desk and carve out ideal policies for ideal situations. They do not exist anymore. So no country can seclude itself and say that, well, we do not want to be a part of this. We only look for ideal situations or solutions. If they are not to be found, we just opt out. That's not an option anymore. So aside from the kind of good or bad, bad or worse situation. One of the main issues that I've been talking a lot about over the past three years is that doing nothing is also a choice that has consequences. It seems very gloomy, all of this, but I think it's important to know that in, in our days, in our time, there are no ideal options. We just have to deal with the world as it is, not as we would like it to be. Those days are over. That's a great uh, truth. I have seen that myself, uh, and I think it's something that this town right now and the new administration uh, is wrestling with as well. I think they are discovering that great truth. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think the American people too, as they become 
more and more focused on the new administration, more and more focused on the issues swirling around, I think they're finding that to be the same thing. Mm. Well, let me ask you a question um, just, to, just to work off of that great truth a little bit. In Norway, as you're dealing with the Norwegian people at, during this time, the, the Norwegian neighborhood over the past number, number of years has gotten increasingly tense, and Norwegian defense spending is having to go up. Um, Norway is uh, doing so much to strengthen its, its defense um, capabilities. Um, your neighborhood, particularly with Russia on the border, but also in the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap, um, certainly Norwegian people are seeing all of this and having to experience a time that was different than in the 1990s when things looked like they were going to work out once the wall fell. I think all of us had this wishful thinking that things were going to be great. Uh, we're going to get Europe back to uh, back together again. And now all of a sudden, certainly for the Norwegian people, as we've seen that not to be the case with Russia, and now the Norwegian backyard has become uh, stressful. How do you how do you talk to Norwegians about that? Do they come to you and say very similar things as you just told us in your great truth? That do they come to you and say, how can it be that we're having to go back to what we thought was in the past, in the old days? Well, I think there has obviously been a, in a change in people's mindset. Um, I think a lot of people, myself included, for many years were hoping for a better situation or a better solution. Somehow, though, I think we all, in a way, turned a blind eye on what was happening in Georgia, uh, thinking that this was just a deviation of the Russian path towards democracy and liberal ideas and, and so forth. And then when things happened in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea, then suddenly everyone had to realize that, well, this was, I think Georgia was a warning sign on what was going to, to happen and emerge later on. Um, we have had a period of, and I think this goes for many countries, we've had a period of declining and at least not growing defense spending. Um, we've had challenges with our readiness. We have had challenges with our endurance. And those challenges and problems were not very much in the forefront, partly because there wasn't really a political interest in trying to find out what the real status of our armed forces was. And no one seemed to think that we ever had to use our armed forces again in the way that uh, we thought we may have to use them in previous times. So when, when I was chairman of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee from 2009 to 2013, um, we did a lot of work trying to find out what the real status was. And we wanted to know because that would lay the foundation for what we had to do if we got into office. So we, we did a lot of work on this, and we criticized our predecessors for not being more open about the challenges we faced. In my opinion, the only way to talk to your people, to your population, about the need for, for instance, increased defense spending or doing a different posture than we had been for the previous years is to tell people what the problem is. Otherwise, it's very difficult to get any kind of popular support for, for instance, increased defense spending if it is at the expense of, for instance, uh, roads, infrastructure, or healthcare. So we, we, had to we had to do this on a very kind of long-term basis, discussing how to do this in the best possible manner at the same time as doing the right things to actually increase our operational capability. 
you could easily see and imagine that just throwing a lot of money into the defense sector wouldn't actually help anyone. It would look good on the statistics, but it wouldn't actually help if you don't at the same time do all the difficult choices. Uh, what to invest in. How will you posture your defense and your forces in the future? Uh, do you put a lot of emphasis on high-end capabilities like we do now? Uh, for instance, new submarines, new MPAs, new F-35s, and also huge investments in army uh, assets also now in the future. Or do we just kind of put money into places where it looks good but doesn't really have any kind of operational outcome? So even though we are now making an historic increase in our defense spending and with popular support, I would say, I mean, this now is something that all political party parties agree upon. And uh, I will say this is something also that the public generally thinks is a good idea. Um, but while, while doing that, we at the same time have to really do tough reforms in our armed forces. We have to do base closures in order to be able to operate stronger bases. We have to allocate personnel to the areas and to the branches of the armed forces where it's most needed. And of course, we have to, when we do all of these huge investments, also make sure that we allocate enough money to do the day-to-day -day running of our armed forces. The worst possible thought is to have, like we had in the mid 2000s, we had a lot of assets, for instance, new frigates. They were mostly docked up. Hmm. That's not where they're supposed to be. No, that's they're supposed to be out yeah. sailing. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's a difficult puzzle, but I think we have managed to come out of this uh, stronger than we were. Wow, that's a, that's a fascinating story, and I think it was replayed not just in Norway, but in the United States as well, in our own way, as well as across the alliance um, of waking up one morning and finding out how far behind you actually were after Georgia, after Crimea. And particularly, you mentioned Georgia. I think for me, I, we, did not, we did not pick up after Georgia that this was going to be some, that the, a, a continuation. I think there was the assumption that this was going to be a one-off. And instead, a few years later, we see Crimea, uh, eastern Ukraine, and we now find ourselves so far behind. Norway doing the right things in terms of defense spending and buying the capabilities and really leading the alliance in terms of, of what nations need to be doing. And just on that point, you know, when you go to NATO ministerials, we've been to many of them together. We have. Uh, and you I've enjoyed there. it, Jim. Yes, well, I <laughs> have enjoyed it as well. Um, you're still there. I'm, I'm not. But... Um, you know, when you sit there and you sit there with all of your colleagues and, um, and you're having to deal with this, this point about the 2% and deal with the buying capabilities um, and the politics behind it. And Norway, as you said, you have, you have talked to the Norwegian people, you've worked with the Norwegian parliament, um, you've got support for what Norway is doing. Certainly Norwegians would, would rather this money being spent on something else, but there's a recognition that it's time now for defense and this has got to be done. But you sit there with your colleagues um, who are going through similar issues, and some are more successful than others, and some are, aren't trying as hard as others. How do you feel sitting there? Do you, I mean, in so many ways you represent the right thing to do. Um, it must be hard as a minister to sit there being sympathetic to the political challenges so many of your peers have around the table, 
uh, but also recognizing that um, some need to be trying a bit harder in terms of talking to their people or in terms of, of bringing, um, bringing success by working through the parliament and increasing spending. I, I really do admire my colleagues in NATO for actually um, making that effort that every, I think everyone around the table is really making that effort. Uh, but as you say, different countries have um, different ways of doing it and have different challenges. They can be economic, they can be political, um, and they can be a combination of the two, or, or it could be other things. Uh, for Norway, I think one of the things that for me has been very important to both convey to the alliance, but, but also to do in a more uh, domestic framework is to actually make people realize that Norway is NATO in the north. We are the gatekeepers. And whatever happens up north is something that we see, we act on, and we share the information. Of That's course, right. especially with you. Not you personally, Jim, but with the well, US. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also with the alliance. And for us to be able to uphold that, um, that position, we have to do three things. The one is, of course, do the right investments in something that is both important to our own defense capabilities, but also to the ability to, def to defend NATO. Many of the things that we are now buying, new F-35s, new submarines, new MPAs and so forth, intelligence capabilities, they're important to us, but they're also closing or filling capability gaps in NATO, which right. is important. Absolutely right. And the second thing we have to do is, again, we cannot stop at only buying new things. We have to make sure that we reform the alliance. Yes. So we have taken two particular initiatives that we feel have gained traction now over the past two years. One being that we need to reform NATO's command structure. You and I have been talking a lot about this. I remember the first time I brought it up during one of our working dinners with the colleagues was um, I, I could literally see the faces of many, especially on the military side, just don't go there, don't go there, whatever you do. Don't touch the command structure. It's going to get you into a lot of trouble. But I think it is extremely important because now we know, after the functional assessment, that NATO's command structure of today is not fit for purpose to meet today's challenges. The second initiative is regarding a maritime strategy for NATO. We, of course, are particularly concerned about the North Atlantic and the strategic challenges in the North Atlantic, but also other places in NATO's AOR, we have to make sure that we have a maritime strategy. The third part of being NATO in the North is that for us to function well, we also need to make sure that we have a working relation with Russia. So I'm always very keen to underline that we do not see a military threat towards Norway from Russia now. But we are concerned about the developments that we do see and have seen over some time, both on the military side, developing new high-end capabilities, but also, of course, on the political side. But we, we cannot escape our geography. So we have to make sure that we have a, a working relationship that we have on a day-to-day -day basis. We have suspended all our military cooperation with Russia, except from Coast Guard, border patrol, search and rescue, incidents at sea, and also we keep an open line between our operational headquarters and the Northern Fleet, 
to avoid misunderstandings, to avoid miscalculations. And that is the balancing act that makes it possible for us also to be an effective eyes and ears in the North on behalf of the Alliance. Boy, I have to say that was an absolutely brilliant summation of so many important points about NATO, about Norway, about Norway's role. And um, we're at the end of our podcast, and that's just a wonderful way to end. And I will just add to it that what you just said, Minister, shows why Norway certainly is a leader within the alliance. Norway is a leader, not just within the alliance, but also Europe as a whole. What Norway does is always practical and pragmatic. It's well thought out, it's balanced. Working with Russia while also strengthening your military capabilities, strengthening the alliance, reforming, keeping relevant NATO, so important. You summarized it so well. Uh, so I will say now, thank you so much for allowing us to have this podcast. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for the leadership that you show. And I look forward to seeing you again. Oh, me too, Jim. And thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be in your podcast. And I'll be happy to come back. If you ever have a slot that can kind of put me into, I'll be more than happy to come back. You can, you can bet. We'll have that slot. Don't worry. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. <laughs>